My name is Daryl Smith. I'm the worship pastor here at New Heights. And uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, um, you heard me tell you that our pastor, our rabbi, Michael Crocker, is the pastor to the stars, that he's frequently gone on um, destination weddings. And a couple of weeks ago, he suffered through uh, a destination wedding in Aspen, Colorado. And because God is just this weekend, he is on a destination wedding in McAllen, Texas. So, um, the good news, we, we are going to stick with Matthew, but the good news is we're going to do a big chunk. So hopefully when Michael comes back, uh, we have something to show for it. If you have a Bible or an electronic device that has a Bible on it, I invite you to pull that out. If, if not, don't worry about it. There's no pressure. We're going to put the words up on the screen here, but we're going to read through this together. We're going to read through Matthew 19, 27 through Matthew 20, verse 16. Then Peter chimed in. We left everything and followed you. What do we get out of it? Jesus replied, yes, you have followed me. In the recreation of the world, when the Son of Man will rule gloriously, you who have followed me will also rule, starting with the twelve tribes of Israel. And not only only you, but anyone who sacrifices home, family, fields, whatever because of me, will get it all back a hundred times over, not to mention the considerable bonus of eternal life. This is the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last, and the last first. God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Later, about nine o'clock, the manager saw some other men hanging around the town square unemployed. He told them to go to work in his vineyard, and he would pay them a fair wage. They went. He did the same thing at noon and again at three o'clock. At five o'clock, he went back out and found others standing around. He said, why are you standing around all day doing nothing? They said, because no one hired us. He told them to go to work in his vineyard. When the day's work was over, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and go on to the first. Those hired at five o'clock came up and were each given a dollar. When those who were hired first saw that, they assumed they would get far more. But they got the same each of them one dollar. Taking the dollar, they groused angrily to the manager. These last workers put in only one easy hour, and you you just made them equal to us who slaved all day under a scorching sun. He replied to the one speaking for the rest, Friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed on the wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give to the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my own money? Are you going to get stingy because I am generous? Here it is again, the great reversal. Many of the first ending up last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Don't worry. Okay. You might remember that we did Matthew 19 last week. Michael walked us through that. And we kind of picked up some of the end of that again this week. And the reason is it's necessary. We need this question from Peter to set up what we're going to talk about today uh, in Matthew 20. This is one of those passages that's a good reminder that the chapter and verse numbers were not put there by the people who wrote these texts. They're put there later by scholars to help us organize the scriptures and, and find them. But clearly, there should not be a break between the end of the conversation that Jesus and Peter were having and this story that begins technically in Matthew 20 that Jesus tells in response to what Peter's doing. Peter asks him this question, what are we going to get out of this? And Jesus tells him that 
that little bit that we heard at the end of Matthew 19 last week. But then right after that, he tells this story. The story is called a parable. Y'all probably know all this, but just to review, parables are stories that are told to illustrate a truth. Um, sometimes they're a little bit tricky, right? They're a little confusing. In fact, in Matthew 13, if y'all can remember back, that was probably about a year ago when we got that. Um, Matthew 13, the disciples ask Jesus, why do you teach this way? Why do you use these stories, these parables? And he says, in essence, to confuse those who aren't listening. He says that this is supposed to be a line in the sand. These stories, they discriminate. They separate those who are listening and who want to hear from those who are not and who don't want to hear. This parable, if you caught it, is a kingdom parable. It starts off by Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is like, or this is the kingdom of God, depending on your translation. Starts off the parable by telling us this is a kingdom of God parable. A kingdom parable that is meant to confuse those who aren't listening. But for those who are, those who want to hear, it's meant to instruct about the nature of the kingdom of God. Most scholars agree that the parables that we have recorded in the Gospels um, are stories that Jesus told over and over. They're repeated stories. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think, and, and I'm not alone in that, this seems to be a unique example where Jesus is directly responding to Peter's question. There it is. Okay, so this probably isn't one that was repeated over and over. This is one that he told directly to respond to Peter's question. Peter says, what's in it for us? And Jesus directly responds. This is not just some lofty teaching for us now. This was something that directly answered Peter's questions and the rest of the disciples who were sitting there. I don't know about you, but I forget that a lot of times. I distance myself from the real people, real situations, the real circumstances of the Bible. And I start acting like perhaps these are just characters in a story that God put there for me so that I could learn from it. But this was real to them. This, they had real questions in that moment, and Jesus gives them real answers. So before we start talking about what this could mean for us now, I think it's probably a better, a wiser idea to first understand what might have been said to them at that moment. To, to say, these are the people who heard these stories first. These are the people that wrote these stories down and who put them and preserved them for us. So clearly there was something that was meant for them. One thing... Um, that Jesus communicates to the disciples who are sitting before him at that moment is clearly, no matter when you think you got in, no matter when you think your access began, everyone's going to get the same blessing. So let's, let's, try to, let's try to think about that. Let's, let's put ourselves in the mind of a first century disciple of Jesus Christ. If you think, I got in on the ground floor of this whole Christian thing, God sent his Messiah, and I'm one of the first 12. All right, wouldn't you be thinking something like, this is going to work out well for me. This is going to get me some good access. I'm going to be remembered. Um, it's coming to me right now if you've ever seen, and forgive me if you're not a fan, the, the, the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. There's, there's a part in there where they start, the disciples start singing a song, actually, about which of them is going to be the greatest and how they're going to be remembered. And I think the line goes, then when we retire, we can write the gospel so they'll still think about us when we, when we die. 
So it's just, that's, I think that's probably safe to assume that the disciples might have been thinking that way. We know, we read in other instances in this gospel and others, that they definitely argued about which of them was the greatest amongst themselves. That they were thinking, where in the line am I among the twelve? But surely they thought of themselves as the twelve, as above the rest of us. Okay, so Jesus tells this story, and I don't know if you're like a Seinfeld fan, this would be the part where like Jesus or Peter goes, Newman. Or if you're like a Homer Simpson fan, it's the dope moment, you know, where, no, this is not going to work out like we thought. But whatever is the case, Jesus clearly communicates to these, to these 12 disciples that no matter where they think they are, everybody gets the same reward. Peter might have assumed that since he was the oldest and the boldest, that he was going to have some special access, some special treatment, that he was first, that he was special. And he's right, he was special. But Jesus says, so is everyone else. So is everyone else. So let's talk also about some of the context of the story that Jesus tells here, about the laborers in the vineyard. The first thing is he, he talks about day laborers. In ancient Israel, day laborers were less than slaves. If you were a slave, you were owned. And your health and well-being and your ability to do your job directly affected your owner's margins. Directly, So they cared about your health and well-being because they owned you. You were property. So they had to, I'm not saying they were treated great, but they were still treated better because the owners had an investment. If you were a day laborer, they didn't care. You were going to be seen at the end, you were going to not be seen after the end of the day. Probably, ever again. Second thing is Jesus gives us this image of the landowner. Not completely different from now, but probably a little bit more back then. If you were a landowner, you were the one with the social power. You were the one with the economic power. Landowners controlled. Third thing, Jesus talks about a denarius, actually. We, we read from the message translation this morning, and Eugene Peterson translates denarius into dollar so that we keep thinking um, and don't get locked up on what is a denarius. But this is what Jesus said. This is the Greek word uh, that was used here as a denarius. And it was just, it was just a, a money is all it was. Um, this, was the stand, this right here is an Assyrian. Okay, this is kind of like, um, like a dime back then. If we keep going with the dollar for a denarius metaphor... Um, it takes 10 of these Assyrians to make one denari. denarius. I get my plurals and my singers mixed up. So 10 Assyrians for one denarius. The denarius was the standard pay for a, labor, a day laborer if they did a full day's work back then. It was a reasonable wage that you'd get one denarius at the end of the day. A, a day laborer knew that if they went out and worked six days in a week and got six denarii, six denarii, that they could provide for their family, that they would be able to keep going. Um, but we do know that it was uh, capable of being subdivided. Uh, you could get less than a denarius. So it's not an unreasonable question for these laborers in the vineyard to say, when they see that the people that came at the end of the day get a denarius, what's up with that? That's, that's not, you can pay them some Assyrians. You could pay them 
eight Assyrians, six Assyrians, whatever it is. It's not an unfair question to ask. So clearly this parable had something to communicate to the disciples. It offered an immediate redefinition of their circumstances. It told them that the ground floor status that they had is irrelevant. It told them that their achievements are irrelevant. There is no advantage. Now, as we transition from those time-bound truths that would have been communicated to those people right then at that moment to discuss some of the time-less truths that we can take today, I want to give you a question, a little warm-up, a little food for thought. It's a tough question. Do we see the disciples that way? Do we think of the disciples as our equals? Or do we think of them like I do, or I have, as the heroes of the faith, the pillars? They had special access. They have special treatment. They knew Jesus in a way that I can never know him. They know him now in a way that I don't. Is that how we see them or do we see them as equals, that there's no advantage? Is there an advantage? Was there an advantage to being one of the original 12? It's a question that we kind of have to wrestle with. Okay, is anyone irritated by this parable yet? Because remember, that's what it's there for. It's this line in the sand. It's there to irritate you. And if you're getting irritated, then I want to encourage you because that's what it's supposed to do. And we're hopefully going to get a little more irritated. Matthew wrote this story down knowing that the people that read it after him would not have the direct context that he had. But he still thought there was something to be communicated there. He knew we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't know the moment like he knew it. But he still wrote it down to teach those who would come after him. So there's something here that we need to pull forward. Our rabbi down the hall, David Munitsky, says that this parable teaches us about the kingdom of God. And he says this, if you're looking for fairness, you've come to the wrong place. When it's all said and done, we're all treated the same. So to ask that question, is fairness what the kingdom of God is all about? There's a story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 30. And I'm going to really sum this story up. David, before he's king, is out... um, fighting for the nation of Israel. And he's got a band of guys with him. And while they're out, you know, taking new lands and picking new fights for the kingdom, um, their home village is sacked. And their wives and their children are all kidnapped. And these marauders take all their possessions and their families. So they come back and they find that this has happened. And David says, all right, well, let's go get our families back. And he takes 600 men. And the 600 men go to find the marauders. Somewhere along the way, about 200 of them say, we're done. We're tired. We don't want to do this. And they stop. So only 400 continue on. And the 400 continue on. They find the marauders. They take care of them. They get their wives and their children back and all their possessions. And when they're coming back, and they actually you know, take a little extra, take all the marauders' stuff as well, so when they're coming back with the spoils of war, with all of the things that they had taken from these marauders, the 400 say, well, we don't have to share this with the, the guys that stopped. They stopped. They shouldn't get all this stuff. We shouldn't have to divide this up. And David says, absolutely, they do get a share. 
we will absolutely share this among the 600. And then he says, and this will be an ordinance in Israel for all time. It doesn't matter whether you went or not. We all share. We all get to share in the, in the bounty. So, David's, David's warriors share this question with the disciples. They both react to their king and say, what's in this for us? Why, are we getting this? Why aren't we getting more than those who did not? They both are basically saying something along the lines of, you know what? We'd be happier if they got less. It'd be more of a blessing to us if you were less generous to them. It'd be more fair if you gave them less than you gave us. And we have to ask the question of ourselves. Do we do that? Do we tell God we'd be happy if you would parse out your love? If you would give others less? Maybe. Maybe there's some goofy examples like, Lord, we'd be happier if you blessed the Spurs a little more than the Mavericks. I know that one hits home. Or the Aggies a little more than the Longhorns. I heard some amens. Um, How about the Mules a little more than the Rangers? You know, I know those are silly. Those are sports ones. So maybe that's not a good example. What if it was um, if you'd bless this Methodist church a little more than the Baptist church down the road? Or maybe, Lord, if you'd give a little bit more to the Republicans than you do to the Democrats. Or if you would bless America more than you would Afghanistan. Father, those people over there, they don't even believe in you. So it's not fair for you to bless them. This gets really uncomfortable really fast. It gets really irritating. But we have to ask this question. Is God's grace the sort of thing that one person can have a lot of and another person has less? I think one of the reasons that this is uncomfortable is because there's three lies going, at least three lies. There might be more, but there's three that I've found that we believe Three lies that work against us. The first lie is the lie of comparison. We all know this. Fundamentally, life does not feel fair. Instead of being at peace with what we have received, we find ways to compare and measure ourselves and our stuff against other people and their stuff. We spend a lot of time and energy wasting and wanting for what someone else has. Danish philosopher, and forgive me on this pronunciation, Soren Kierkegaard, I don't know if I'm saying that right, he said that comparison should be a sin. That it's not listed in the Bible as a sin, but that it should be. And I think there's some real truth in that. Because I don't know anywhere where sin's gonna, or I mean where comparison's gonna help us out. Here's a formula I want you to to think about. Comparison leads to envy. And envy leads to destruction. Every time. The ancients called this ability, I guess, this mistake. They called it um, using your evil eye. When we let our evil eye size things up, and we see the world through our evil eye, we're going to do one of two things. 
we're either going to steal what others have, or if we can't steal it, we're going to find a way to ruin what they're enjoying. Those are the only two options. The second lie is the lie of scarcity. It's the lie that tells us there's not enough. I don't have what I need. It's the lie that those guys at the end of that story were thinking. They'd signed on at the beginning of the morning for a dollar, for one denarius, and they were happy to do it. But at the end of the day, suddenly a denarius is not enough. I don't have what I need. When we arrive at this conclusion that there's not enough, we're basically telling God, you haven't really provided for me. You haven't really given me what I need. When we say, I am lacking in something that I need, we assume also that what we have is a reward. That it's a contractual obligation and that we have been shortchanged. I don't think that that's what's really going on there. We're telling God, you're not keeping up your end. You did not fulfill your part of the contract. Third lie. This is the really big one. It's the cultural narrative of earning favor. Uh, In his book, this basically is saying, I can earn favor by my performance. In his book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryant Smith writes this. This narrative is rooted in our world where earning is the means by which we obtain things. From a young age, we learn that our our parents' love is dependent on our good behavior. That school grades are given based on our performance. That affection is offered on attractiveness. That rejection, loneliness, and isolation are the consequences of failure. When every person in every situation in every day of our lives treats us on the basis of how we look, act, and perform, it is difficult not to project that onto God. After all, God is bigger than our parents, more aware than our authority figures, and sees more of us than our closest friends do. Therefore, the all-seeing, all-knowing God is aware of every bad thing we have ever thought or done. If God were our parent, he would withhold his love just as our parents did when we behaved badly. If God were our teacher, we would get enough. If God were our judge, the verdict would be guilty as charged. Guilt, fear, shame, and the hunger for acceptance become the primary motivators in our performance-based culture. Bible scholar, I can't ever say this name, Joachim Jeremias points out that the rabbis actually told a very similar story to the one that Jesus told. That there was a tradition of this parable by the Jewish rabbis, but their story had a different punchline. At the end of their story, the laborers who came last worked harder. They earned their denarius because in the hour that they had, they strived more than anybody else. They worked so much harder, they achieved so much more, that that's why they were made equals. Jesus takes that parable and leaves that part out. It's not something you achieve, it's not something that you earn. When David taught on this, our Rabbi David taught about this parable a few months ago, he said, Jesus was trying to get disciples to stop thinking that serving God results in a wage at all. It's not a reward earned for work done. God does not make contracts with us as if we could bargain or negotiate for a better deal. He makes covenants. He promises everything and expects everything in return. 
When he keeps his promise, he is not rewarding us. He is doing what comes naturally to his overflowingly generous nature. This is who God is. Remember, this is a kingdom parable. It tells us about the nature of God. After a day's work or an hour's work, God intends to bring a blessing to everyone. God intends to bless those who do not deserve blessing. Is that fair? In this parable, God asks us this really tough question. Will you hate me because I'm generous? This is a really uncomfortable question. But can we admit that? In our false pursuits for what is fair, do we actually end up hating God because he's generous? This is what this parable asks us to engage We aren't really that comfortable with real generosity and real kindness. The kind that's undeserved, unexpected, the kind of which there's no response except for humility. We are much more comfortable when we can earn our keep. Measure for measure. A good wage for a good day's work, like the parable the Jewish rabbis told. That's logical. That's fair. That's balanced. But what if we cannot earn God's favor? What does that mean? What if God does not withhold blessing based on effort and output? What does that tell us about God? What if God's not mad at us? There's something that um, I think Dallas Willard says that says the general thinking in American Christians is that God loves me He doesn't like me very much when I sin. Is that how you feel if you're a parent? Is that how you feel about your kids? Do you love them less when they're making mistakes? What if God's not mad at us? Can we believe in a God who delights in favoring the broken? Can we believe in a God who delights in honoring those who have no honor? Do we believe that the God of the universe loves to bless us? What do we think? What do we really believe about God? This is what Jesus is telling us in this parable. Asking us to think about. This is contrary to the way of the world. The great 20th century preacher A.W. Tozer said, Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, What comes to your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. He's basically saying that our relationship to God, our future is determined by what we think about him. How do we see him? Jesus tells us this parable so that we might see God more accurately. Jesus says, you're concerned with fairness? Think bigger. You don't really want fair. It's not what you need. What you need is mercy, kindness, generosity, acceptance, belonging, and love. These are the markers of the kingdom of God. These are the things that we should think about when we think about God. And no matter what our fear tells us, no matter what the lies 
of the world tell us and the lies of our culture tell us there's more than enough for everyone. 